Stone Roses, Lenny Kravitz. Okay. Who else? Uh, is it you two? Uh, I've only seen you two in concert once, and Lenny Kravitz opened for him. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, wow. awesome. yeah he has a lot of energy. Wow. <laughs> Those are the voices of Oliver Crisp and Thomas J. Ord. They're two theologians who think very differently about God. You almost couldn't find two theologians who think more differently than Tom and Oliver. That's why I decided to interview them together. I thought it might be interesting to see where they clash and where they contrast and how they think about things. I decided to ask them an opening icebreaker question about music, which is what you just heard, but... Turns out there was not much ice to be broken. They're two of the most gracious guys, which led me to think about another theological and psychological question. Does your theology have anything to do with whether or not you're a nice person? But that's not today's question. I facilitated this conversation between Tom and Oliver, and I framed it in three categories. First, we talk about traditions. Now, the Christian tradition has a lot of varieties and colors. And Tom comes from the Wesleyan tradition. Oliver, on the other hand, is an expert in the Reformed tradition. So we start out a conversation talking about the distinctives between doing theology from each of these angles. Next, we started talking about the main area where Tom and Oliver think differently. It's the area of providence or God's sovereignty. It's the part of theology that looks at how God interacts with the world how much control he maintains over what happens, over people and our decisions. Sovereignty versus free will. Lastly, we end the conversation by talking about Christology. Christology is a big theological term, but it's really just talking about Jesus and the idea that Christians consider him to have two natures, a human and a divine one. And so Christology just looks at what that means and uh, how a human being could be both at the same time, both human and divine. To give you a little more background on Tom and Oliver, Oliver was previously a professor of systematic theology at Fuller Seminary. He's now at St. Andrews University in Scotland, where he's the professor of analytic theology, a field he helped to establish. He's also the author of several books, including Deviant Calvinism, and a new book on the atonement. Tom Ord is a professor of open and relational theology at Northwind University, where he runs a doctoral program. He's also the author of several books, including his most recent one, God Can't, and The Uncontrolling Love of God. Has a nice ring to it, right? I'm Sari Martin Concepcion, and I'm the Director of Communications at Blueprint 1543. This conversation was recorded at one of our Theopsych seminars. Theopsych is a project that considers what new insights concerning human nature may be discovered when theology and psychology are brought together, an initiative supporting science-engaged theology. Hosted by Fuller Theological Seminary's Star Office and Blueprint 1543. Hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm sitting here with two theological giants. 
Definitely not. He's a little taller than I am, so he's more of a giant. <laughs> it's more true of Oliver. Than <laughs> That's right. So I guess I'll start with Tom, because I know you're known for some more progressive and liberal theologies, but I think that you still identify as operating from the Wesleyan tradition. Maybe you can talk about what that is a little bit and why you still find yourself there, why you, what, what emphases of the tradition are still compelling to you. Yeah, I am definitely consider myself a Wesleyan thinker, Wesleyan theologian. Uh, the label I often use about my own theology that's a little more particular is open and relational. Most Wesleyans like that word relational. Some are a little bit wary of the word open, but that relational aspect is very common amongst Wesleyans. And I suppose what makes the tradition attractive to me as someone uh, who identifies with it are various emphases. One would be a strong emphasis of thinking about God as loving and trying to orient the doctrine of God or the attributes of God somehow aligned with love. And so Wesleyans are typically more likely to rethink some other attributes of God in light of what they think is a good way to talk about God's love. Another thing that's very typical for Wesleyans is we want to talk about something like free will, free agency, prevenient grace, which is the idea that God acts and invites and calls and woos, all kinds of language, Mm -hmm. uh, but allows for and asks for some kind of creaturely response. Now, there's all kinds of ways to think about that, but that's typical of a Wesleyan way of looking at the world. We also, I think, in comparison at least with some parts of the Christian tradition, we probably place more trust on our personal experiences or community experiences, something about human experience. We're a little more, not not that we can't be fooled and not that, you know, we're all perfect in every way, but we tend to lean into our experiences with God and others and think that there's something valuable there, perhaps more than some other aspects of the religious tradition. I've got an essay in which I talk about 12 distinctives of Wesleyan thought, but I'll stop there. (laughs) (laughs) And so when we say Wesleyan, we're referring to John Wesley and some denominations that come from his teaching are the Nazarene, which is the one you're associated with, the Church of the Nazarene. Nazarene. We also have Methodists. United Methodists, Free Methodists, some Church of the Brethren, uh, Salvation Army, Army, Wesleyan Mm -hmm. Church you know, a number of independent, charismatic, some Pentecostal churches. So it's kind of a collection of various groups. And Oliver, you're a famous Reformed theologian, <laughs> but you're also known for sort of testing the boundaries of that. So what emphases or foci are, are most important in identifying someone who's working within the Reformed tradition? Or- yeah, well, I mean, I would like to say things like, divine love in the same way that Tom did. I imagine, I imagine that's not the first thing that jumps into people's minds when they think of reformed theology. Never, yeah, exactly. It's important to me. But, uh, I guess most people when they think of reformed theology tend to think of an emphasis on the absolute sovereignty of God. That is to say God's absolute control over all that happens in creation. And a corresponding sort of limited freedom for human creatures in some way, an emphasis on the way in which sin has its entered the creation, has corrupted human beings in such a way that we're incapable of pleasing God without divine grace. So there's a kind of, not exactly a helplessness of 
humanity, but certainly depravity, a total depravity. That's a good report. <laughs> total depravity of human beings. Not that we're as bad as we could be, but that in every aspect of our human nature, we're corrupted in some way and need God's grace. And God's absolutely sovereign in all that he does, and so he's sovereign in the, the way that he brings about human salvation in Christ. And I suppose also in Reformed teaching, you've got this idea that God ordains the salvation of those of us that he reconciles through the work of Christ. So there's there's a very strong sense from the get-go that God is in control, God is bringing about the ends that he wishes to bring about in creation, which are good ends, and that uh, he creates human beings that they may enjoy him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever is the answer. So that comes out of the Protestant Reformation right? and starts with around... Guys like Luther and Calvin and Swingley. Right, and right, yeah. There's not a single figurehead of Reformed theology in the same way that there might be, or some Wesleyans might think of John Wesley as being a particular figurehead for sure. what they do. Although often people think that John Calvin is the kind of figurehead of Reformed theology. In fact, mm-hmm. there, were, there were a number of different people that were instrumental in, in that sort of founding era of the Protestant Reformation, like you say, Zwingli, Calvin... Luther's obviously not reformed, but I mean, he's, he's much closer to some of the emphases of, of Zwingli and Calvin on these things. And others like Vermeule and um, later people like Zanke and Turretin and so on. So there's a, there's a kind of constellation of figures that make up the tradition. I think Oliver is exactly right. Sometimes Wesleyans will add in the name J- Jacob Arminius to try to say right. Wesleyan Arminian to add another important figure in that conversation. Yeah. Right. And it was important for me when I was learning about theology more in depth to kind of figure out where the tradition that I had was raised in or came from, where it was located in relation to other traditions, just because you tend to think what you grow up in is normal or most common. So I think it's just fun to kind of locate some of these things. So I grew up in mostly Presbyterian, which comes from the Reformed tradition. And so that's kind of what I was most familiar with, but been attracted to a lot of ideas that I found in Wesleyan traditions as I got older, so it's kind of interesting. But And then even uh, a lot of non-denominational evangelical churches will have a lineage kind of from one of these angles, right? right. Like you'll have like big non-denominational churches where they're definitely Calvinist, you know, yes. like or yeah. definitely are not Arminian, you know, or definitely whatever, or Calvary chapels or something. It's funny, I find that like in the Church of the Nazarene, we sometimes say that the typical layperson will have a theology that's way too much like Calvin. And I've heard some of my Calvinist friends, let's say Baptist churches, I say, you guys are way too much, way too Arminian. You should be real Baptist. Or, and so uh, just because you're affiliated with any particular denomination doesn't necessarily mean you espouse the, quote, orthodox theology of that group. Totally. And even as you were talking, both of you were talking, I was thinking about that phrase, God is in control. Mm. And... Technically, that phrase should be much more common in a Reformed traditional church than a Wesleyan tradition. Like I've heard someone say, you know, it's more like God's in charge, but he's not in control, you know. But I don't know if that's true in how the traditions understand how we come to knowledge or truth. John Wesley, Wesleyanism has associated with it the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which is scripture, reason, experience, tradition. And the phrase... Most commonly associated with the Reformed tradition is Sola Scriptura, but I don't feel like that was 
being said to say, oh, we don't use reason. Oh, we, you know, we don't regard tradition. So I'm hoping you guys could kind of talk about that a little bit, how you think of those things. Are those four things, maybe we'll start with you, Tom, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, are those four things hierarchical in any way? Yeah, I think Wesleyans differ on this. Mm -hmm. Some include sources beyond those four. Mm-hmm. But you'll find in more, I'll say, more traditional Wesleyan circles, they'll have a strong hierarchy. They'll say Bible is first, and these other three are supplemental, or we understand the Bible through the one of, or all of these other three. In more progressive circles, they'll say things like, well, you know, yeah, the Bible matters, but boy, we read it through our experience, and so that sounds kind of like it's trumping things. So uh, there's a variety of ways to think about any kind of hierarchy Mm -hmm. in addition to thinking that there are even more resources than those four. Uh, Some will appeal to the arts and sciences, for instance. That's interesting. I I mean, of course, it is a distinctive of Wesleyan theology, you're quite right. But I've often thought to myself, construed in a certain way, I don't see why a Reformed theologian couldn't affirm pretty much the same thing. I mean, certainly Reformed theologians, as Tom's already said in respect to his tradition, would want to say, you know, there's some sense in which scripture has a kind of theological authority above other sorts of theological authorities, this side of the grave, it's this kind of norming norm, it stands above other other traditions, as it were. Um, Nevertheless, there is definitely a sense in which reformed theologians privilege reason Mm -hmm. and have a very high regard for human ability to reflect and think God's thoughts after him in terms of systematic theology, which, of course, Reformed theologians are very keen on. <laughs> they do have a place for experience. I would, I would suggest usually a, a much less pronounced sense of experience mm. than um, most Wesleyan theologians, but there's always exceptions. I mean, if you look at someone like Jonathan Edwards, who's clearly a kind of canonical Reformed thinker, his work on religious experience, particularly his great work, The Religious Affections, is a profound work of religious psychology, which is all about trying to give a sense of what might count as a true and converting religious experience. So there is a strand of Reformed theology for for which um, experience is is really important. And of course, tradition is important in Reformed theology, especially that that, that brand of Reformed theology, which I think of as the kind of mainstay of Reformed theology, which um, looks to confessional documents as a way of summarizing what Reformed churches stand for, what they believe, the doctrines, the teachings that they hold, those confessions tend to be only sort of like one step down from or second to uh, what we find in Scripture, at least in in many sorts of Reformed churches. So uh, although the quadrilateral isn't usually associated with Reformed theology, I think there are similar sorts of distinctives that you can find, maybe refracted slightly differently through a slightly different lens, but nevertheless, there's a lot of similarity there, I think. So in the spirit of this event, where do you think science fits in relation to either Sola Scriptura or the Quadrilateral, or how have you come to understanding truth better? Well, if we don't put science as its own category, and let's say we put it under experience, and we mm-hmm. say science suggests a kind of broad experience or maybe even a uniformed or uh, systematic experience, or there's some way we might talk about it. The Wesleyans are going to say, yep, science can tell us something true about God. I think the Reformed folks are going to say that as well. So I don't know if that's really distinctive. Mm-hmm. Um, insofar as Wesleyans have tended to, in general, trust experience, maybe a little more than Reformed have, 
they might be a little bit more open to having some of their views about theology altered given a science. Again, that's that's a generalization, and that's for good or ill. Sometimes, you know, a really hot scientific theory takes the stage and a period of history, and the Wesleyans go after it, and then that theory dies, and we kind of look stupid. Mm-hmm. So um, there's advantages and disadvantages to that. Yeah, I think there is a way of thinking about the way we look at the natural world that goes right back to fountainheads of reformed thought, people like um, Zwingli and particularly Calvin in his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is great, his great summary of Christian teaching, where he talks about the two books, the book of Revelation, the book of nature. I would think that the, there's, there's good reason to think that reformed theologians can find a place for scientific inquiry as part of this book of nature. God's work in creation is something that uh, many reformed theologians have thought we should take an interest in. And that involves us uh, trying to figure out what we can about the world from other disciplines other than theology. Of course, Reformed theology has always thought of theology itself as the queen of the sciences. But, you know, a queen has her subjects. <laughs> and you might think that many of the other, the, many of the other university curriculum subjects are um, disciplines which help us have a sense of the world that God's placed us in and what that world is like and can tell us something about the fingerprints of God that we find in the world around us. So at its best, I think that Reformed theology has a tradition of thinking seriously about science as a field of inquiry and as it's developed, has sought to engage it in a serious way as well. Of course, there are always unhelpful ways that a particular tradition can engage something like science and there are, there are, there's plenty of that that you can see in the Reformed tradition as well. But I think at its best... There's certainly respect for um, what science is able to deliver for us in terms of knowledge of the world in which we find ourselves and um, the way in which that might, the book of nature might fit with respect to God's revelation to us in Scripture. Yeah. Can I jump in there? I'm going to throw an idea out here that I haven't talked to Oliver about, see if he thinks this general claim is correct. How's that? <laughs> and it comes from my philosophy professor when I was an undergraduate. Uh, He used to say, and this is again a generalization, that Wesleyans have a kind of logic similar to the logic of the sciences. We use inductive and abductive logic much more often than deductive logic, whereas the Reformed tradition tends to have a, a tighter system in part because they rely more on deductive, not that both never draw from these wells, but right, right. Would, would you think that that's true? Perhaps. I mean, I can certainly see why you might think on a certain way of thinking about Reformed theology, because a lot of Reformed theology is kind of front-loaded, as it were. It's, it's not just that it's doctrine-heavy, but that it's, it locates the um, center of gravity in God and God's works. Right. And once you've got a clear picture of God and God's works, lots of other things fall out of that. Right, deduce, right? yeah. And um, so I can see how many people might think, oh, well, that's kind of characteristic of much Reformed theology, that you, you, you pack a lot into what you say right at the beginning yeah. uh, about God's purposes in creation, who God is. Once you've done that, really, everything else is kind of footnotes to that. There is a kind of extrapolation of that in terms of how that works out in the creation. And in a sense, is a kind of deduction from what you've said about God and God's nature and God's plans and purposes for the creation. Mm-hmm. 
So that's, there, there's certainly some truth. I mean, you can overdo that, but I think there's sure. certainly some truth to yeah. that. And I, th I certainly think it's true that much Reformed theology is sort of very much front-loaded, as I've said. Sort of what I was taught growing up in a very conservative Reformed context was it, it felt like the Bible, the scriptures, were intended to create systematic theology. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> like, that's definitely true. <laughs> and, you know, obviously the correct systematic theology, which is, uh, you know, a reform play, which is the Institutes. I'm liking what I'm hearing so far. <laughs> <laughs> but I've actually read you, you have said that the text is underdetermined in some of its right, meaning and right. a lot of what it says. There's yeah. Lots of different genres written over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. It's mostly poetry. Mm -hmm. So you acknowledge a level of subjectivity yeah. in how a person chooses an interpretive tradition. The idea that you can just read off the face of scripture, you know, doctrines that are just there for the for the for the taking, as it were, <laughs> is kind of hopelessly flat-footed. Mm -hmm. If that were the case, then we would just wouldn't have the the breadth of different traditions in Christianity and the depth of disagreement that we have in all sorts of really noble issues. Yeah. So I mean, it seems to me that that's very good evidence for thinking that you can't simply read off the face of the text mm. a particular conclusion. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't have the disagreements. We would all see that that's, you know, this, this text means this doctrine. It's as simple as that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think the role of interpretation, in both in terms of the individual believer as they come to the text, but also in terms of the kind of interpretive traditions that we're part of, the communities, the churches that we're, um, we're members of and the traditions that they're part of, have a very profound role in shaping how we read the text. So it's no surprise, for example, that if you come across a Baptist who's been formed in a Baptist tradition, and a Baptist context as I was growing up, that when they read the New Testament text, they will tell you, well, obviously the New Testament teaches believers baptism. Right. That's the only way to think about baptism from it's the New Testament clear text. From the text. Uh, and likewise, if you, if you were to speak to, say, a Presbyterian, who's grown up in a very different tradition, at least with respect to that particular doctrine, uh, unsurprisingly, they will tell you, well, it's obvious from the very same texts <laughs> that, in fact, uh, there's, there's provision for the baptism of infants, and that's the normal way in which people baptize. So there's, a, there's an obvious case in which an important doctrine is a doctrine that divides Christian communities along interpretive lines. So speaking, let's pivot here to Providence, um, which came up a little bit in your initial answers. Obviously, the Reformed, as you've already articulated, has a reputation for a more hands-on power in the world that God foreordains everything that happens. Yeah. And that's a fair articulation. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you laughing? No, it's just I like the hands-on thing. <laughs> Very We've hands got a hands-on God. In Very hands-on. <laughs> like, I'm probably not the best at articulating the Wesleyan view, but you've already done it to some extent. But you take it a little bit farther maybe than some, Tom. So maybe you want to start by talking about your idea of how God yeah. works in the world. Well, let me start with what I think is kind of a more typical Wesleyan view and then great. go to my idiosyncratic view. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think a typical Wesleyan is going to say, you know, those Reformed folks, they've got a God who foreordains and predestines all things. We don't think that's right because we think there's free will and there's all kinds of conceptual issues that we have with that. But the traditional Wesleyan is probably going to say, well, 
God doesn't foreordain it, but God foreknows it. Because in some way, God can know the future exhaustively and with absolute certainty, and yet that future not be determined, that there will still be free will choices. And so that's a very common Wesleyan-Arminian kind of view. My own view, however, also places into question whether or not God can foreknow with certainty what's going to happen in the future. I'm an open theist in that sense. Right. I saw you were on a podcast recently, and like they advertise it by just saying, some Christians think God doesn't know the future. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> that was the headline. And sometimes that's sort of cashed out in trying to make sense of free will in relation to God. But I think there's even a more fundamental issue at stake than just free will, as important as that is. And that's the question of how we think about God's relationship to time. So as an open and relational thinker, I think God experiences time moment by moment, sequentially, something analogous to how creatures experience it. And that changes then how I think not only about how God knows the future, but God's plans, God's purposes, how things could play out whether or not things are secured in the future or not. So when we talk about a doctrine of providence, an open and relational thinker like me has a much more open-ended kind of notion of providence, that the future's not yet been settled, and it could go a number of different ways that even God, in my view, can't control. So, Oliver, will you just say a little bit about the Reformed view or Tom articulated at the beginning that most Wesleyans or Arminians have, is that the Reformed view seems overly determined, and then yeah. it makes us all robots. Um, right, right. So maybe you can. Yeah, so that, that is a common uh, common criticism of Reformed theology, and I can see why people would would uh, worry along those lines. It certainly looks on Reformed, on a kind of typical Reformed way of thinking, that if God's ordaining everything, then you know, doesn't that make us um, simply puppets? You know, carrying on what God has said is going to be the case, you know, what role does human agency and freedom really have, those sorts of worries. And uh, I can see that those are real concerns, of course. So there, there's, there's one could sim- simply try and take a tack that responds to those typical questions that are raised against the reform tradition. And you can go some way to responding to them, but the, there's going to come a point where you, you can't say you can't say more. There's going to be a kind of gap, an explanatory gap. And the reason why there's an explanatory gap, it seems to me, is just because we have a dearth of information. So if one were to look, for example, at Romans 9, which is often trotted out by Reformed theologians as a good reason for thinking God's an absolute sovereign in all things, in the election of some and not others, in the election of you know, those who are members of the true Israel and all that kind of stuff. Um, if you look at what Paul has to say there about the scope of God's electing purposes in creation, fundamentally what he's coming up against is a kind of blank wall, you know, in answer to the question, why does God elect some rather than others? The answer seems to be, we don't know. And it's not for us to question God. And you can find a similar sort of answer elsewhere in Scripture where similar sorts of worries are addressed. Worries that have to do with the fact that God's hidden, his purposes are not entirely revealed to us. I mean, Deuteronomy 29-29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And if you look at something like Job, you know, even at the end of Job, where he's presented with God out of the whirlwind, um, no explanation is given by God for why things have happened to Job that we, the readers, know that Job never seems to know. I think that's salient for these sorts of issues, because I think we as human beings have a desire to try and, and want to figure out why are things the way they are, why they're not. 
Um, why has God ordained things this way if he has, and why not some other way? And it seems to me that there's good reason to think from, from the biblical record that if we want to pursue those questions, we're going to come up against a wall at some point because there's this expansionary gap and there's a sense in which God's purposes are mysterious and God is, is, um, is hidden from us in, in very fundamental ways. Of course, he's revealed to us as well in Christ, but what God reveals of himself to us is very limited. So a lot of those sorts of questions, which are fundamental theological questions, I think are the sorts of questions that we can't really have satisfactory answers to this side of the grave. Mm-hmm. And much of the time, I think you have to simply pay your money and take your choice in terms of the, the, the panoply of, of, or the smorgasbord, to change the metaphor, of options that there are on the table. And I think those in, in the Arminian and the Wesleyan traditions opt for, for one way of thinking about that, where they want to privilege, um, as Tom's already said, human freedom that is front and center. And so the way in which God is sovereign has to be constant with that. And then foreknowledge is, is doing a lot of work. And the Reformed, by and large, take a slightly different tack. But of course, if I may add one last thought, the tradition, the Reformed tradition, like the Wesleyan tradition, is messy and complicated, and there are all sorts of different views expressed there. Sometimes we speak as if there's just the Reformed view or the Wesleyan view. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah. Some of my work's been about trying to problematize that, or at least trying to get Reformed thinkers who often today have a very narrow view of what Reformed theology is, to admit that actually there's, there's much broader resources in the tradition. Mm. There, are, there are Reformed thinkers who want to emphasize human freedom in, in much more fundamental ways than perhaps is often reported. There are Reformed thinkers who don't, want to have, don't seem to want to have any notion of human freedom, like Huldrych Zwingli, who seems to be a really almost a hard determinist all the way down. And then you've got figures that sort of straddle the traditions, the traditions of a sort of a reformed thought and, and Wesleyan thought. And I suppose Jacob Arminius is a very good example of that. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a person who lived and died a reformed pastor and professor, but he's now seen as the, the a sort of fountainhead for the Arminian Wesleyan tradition. I think that's fascinating. I mean, I recall, I mean, growing up with the reformed view and being fine with that gap and just saying to myself, this is an area of mystery that I wasn't just okay with it because it's like, here's the answer. It was like, well, I still believe God is good because there's a lot of goodness in the world and, you know, nature is beautiful. I, my experience of God and prayer is beautiful and, and things like that. So whatever the answer is, he's got to have a good one, you know. But, Tom, maybe you can respond. And Well, I think uh, what Oliver describes, and as we try to compare and contrast a mm-hmm. Reformed and Wesleyan view of things, I want to go back to the deductive and inductive approach to things. So a Wesleyan is typically going to try to build some kind of a case for a particular doctrine of God. And they're going to draw from scripture and all these sorts of things, tradition, etc. But they're probably going to feel like they're a little longer leash when it comes to wrestling with these mysteries. And they might want to rethink or reinterpret Romans 9, Mm -hmm. rethink divine power because they think they might have more room because they don't start with these kind of propositions or ideas and then kind of figure things out. They're kind of building up a case, kind of like a lawyer in a courtroom or something. And so in the case of suffering or appealing to mystery there, most Wesleyans don't have a complete answer to the problem of evil, but they think that at least putting in free will gets us a little bit further away from blaming God for what happens in the world. My own view here is very different from most Wesleyans. 
I'd go so far as to say that we should so radically rethink God's power that there are things that God simply can't do because to do them would be to go against God's others empowering, self-giving love. That's a move most Wesleyans either don't know about or aren't prepared to, 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 <laughs> to take. But at least speaking for myself, I personally, I've noticed this over the decades of my life, I have a particular aversion to appeals to mystery. I always have myself, I want to find a better proposal. Not that I have all the answers by any case. There's always going to be some room for mystery. But I'm, I, I find myself searching for a, a better model compared to some other models. And that propels me to do some pretty radical rethinking of what many Christians think are traditional beliefs about God. So just so we know, we made it like 34 minutes without you saying the title of your book. <laughs> just kidding. Just real quick, Oliver, because I know that the way that, that he says God can't do things, yeah. all Christians would actually say that, right? In terms of sure. logical impossibilities. Right. I'm, I'm not trying to trick you into saying you agree with Tom more than No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> But I'm just. A good point. A but good I think point. that's yeah. where he's operating from, right? Yeah, it's, I guess I think the vast majority of Christians would say, yeah, there are certain things God can't do. If you mean things like, could God sin? Right. Or good, could God make a stone too heavy for Himself to lift? Right. Those sorts of things. Either because the thing that's being posited is a kind of pseudo problem; it's not a real problem because it's not a real sort of thing, like the the so-called paradox of the stone, which is the idea: can God make a stone too big for himself to, to lift or mm. variations on that like and Mary Basher. Yeah, yeah, or could yeah, exactly. Or could God make a bowl of porridge too large for himself to eat or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there are certain things that turn out to be not real problems. I certainly think that's that's true. And I, there it seems to me that if you have a, a notion of God as, you know, in some sense essentially good in his very nature or, or however one describes the being of God as as inextricably good then it would seem very difficult to make sense of the claim that God could sin. So, yeah, I, I certainly think that that's true. Right, and there's even some scriptures like that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Lies. His eyes are too pure to look upon evil, for example, right. and Habakkuk, things like that. Right, yeah. right, right. So is that part of your argument, Tom? Do I have that right? That It's same? pretty common, not all theologians, mm -hmm. but someone like Thomas Aquinas, for instance, will say that God can't change the past. Now, when he says that, he has a certain notion of God's relation to time. Now, some theologians think God can't change the past, but Aquinas and others said, nope, God can't even change the past. Open theists say, well, you know, if we can have a certain idea about God's relation to the past, why can't we also have that kind of notion for what might become the future? So in their way of thinking, Aquinas didn't think God experienced time sequentially, but in their way of thinking, um, this is a claim about the way God relates with the world and with us. And it makes sense in a particular way of thinking. And they're also, at least many of them, are going to claim, you know, the Bible says a lot of things about God. But there are some things that seem to support our view. There are some things that kind of seem to go against it. So we're not going to claim that the Bible's totally on our side here. Things about God repenting, for instance, more than 40 times the Bible says God repents. Or God making covenants in which God says, you know, if my people will humble themselves, I will do X. But if they don't, I'm going to do Y, which sounds like that hasn't yet been decided. 
and you know we we got all, we can cherry pick <laughs> with the best of them. So open theists are going to say our position, at least those advocates, makes pretty good sense of the Bible. It makes pretty good sense of a view of God's love in relation with the world, and then we're going to argue about the details. <laughs> Tom's right that much depends on what you think about God's relation to the created order. I mean, many Reformed theologians have taken the view that God is not in time like creatures, and so God's relation to time is going to be very different. Um, God doesn't change in himself. He's incapable of change, in fact. He lives his life in something so different from us that we can't really grasp what it's like, but it's something like an eternal present, at least that's one way of thinking about God's being outside of time. So there's no succession in his life on this version of the traditional view. There is, there's more than one version, but that's a, mm-hmm. a typical view. Uh, and of course, our life is very different from that. It's full of succession and change and making, you know, regretting and all sorts of... Now, that does require Reformed theologians to take a different view of the biblical texts. Uh, and Tom's right there. I mean, it does seem like there are many biblical texts that on the face of it, seem to fit better with a kind of, with a sort of approach that he's adopting, where God does change his mind, and God doesn't seem to know certain things, or at least he leaves it open. And here, we're going back to the earlier point that you made about the, the texts themselves being kind of, as I, I put it, metaphysically underdetermined, by which I mean the texts are consistent with more than one kind of philosophical view. You have to think carefully about which of the philosophical views that are, that, that are out there you think best fits with the different texts, all things considered. But whichever view you're for, you're always going to have ragged edges that aren't going to be um, easy to fit in. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's, uh, you know, sometimes in popular Reformed um, apologetics, you get Reformed thinkers who say, this is just a biblical view, this is the only way to think of the Bible. And those people who are Arminians have just a completely, they're not even taking the Bible seriously, that's completely Mm-hmm. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And let me say, Wesleyans can do the same thing about Calvin. So mm-hmm. yeah. it goes both ways. So I, I really dislike the mudslinging. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think I think we need to get away from that. I mm-hmm. think we need to say, yeah, there are real differences in different aspects of Christian tradition, including um, between Wesleyans and Reformed and open theists and Wesleyans and Reformed. Let's get to what those issues are and talk about them, absolutely. But let's do it in the right kind of spirit. I think many Reformed thinkers have, have taken a different view of, of God's relation to time, but not all, right? Mm-hmm. There, are, there, are, there are some people in the Reformed tradition who would have a, a different way of thinking about God's relation to time, who might think God is, has succession in his life or is somehow um, in time in some exalted sense or some, some sense analogous to humanity, and that he does experience something, something like change. So there again, you have to make a decision about which of these strands of the Reformed tradition you find most compelling. I remember one time having a conversation with Anna Case Winters, who's a theologian at McCormick, which is a Presbyterian seminary. And I was giving her a little bit of a hard time about, you know, you're a Calvinist, so, you know, you can't be an open theist. She said, no, no, I'm an open and relational theologian, and I think Calvinism supports it. And I thought, that's not the Calvin I've read, yeah. but the way she thinks about it, given yeah. certain commitments she has, yeah. she, even she could be an open relational theologian right. Right. and still consider herself a Calvinist. Yeah. Have you heard of that? 
<laughs> well, so, no, I haven't heard of that, yeah. but I would certainly say that, to my earlier point, the reform tradition is much broader than is often reported. In, I mean, within certain constraints, but I certainly think there's, there's greater breadth to the tradition than sometimes reported. For example, of course you've got someone like Calvin, and he's got particular views, but you've got someone like Schleiermacher, who's got very different sorts of views mm. from Calvin in all sorts of fundamental ways. He's a reformed, he's a reformed theologian. You've got someone like Karl Barth. He's clearly a reformed theologian. He's got very different views from either Calvin or Schleimacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've even got people who, who are theologians who've been formed in the reformed tradition. They don't necessarily self-identify as reformed now, but and their views have, have in some respects moved quite far away from certain reformed tenets. But nevertheless, that's the tradition that's for them. So... There is a much greater breadth than sometimes is reported, and I, I, I think that's important because I think it's important for us to, to try and keep a sort of breadth to the way that we think about God's, God and his purposes in creation. Some of these things are very difficult to fathom. To, I think there is a truth in the matter, but our grasp on the truth in the matter is often very fragile and fallible, it seems. Yeah, exactly. We need some humility. We need some humility, yeah. yeah. So, Tom, maybe you could just kind of stretch out your view a little bit more in saying that you... So you believe God can't intervene to stop evil in the world because that is a more loving characterization of God? Yeah, so um, kind of a technical way to put it is this. Um, I think love comes logically first among the divine attributes. And I think this love is inherently self-giving and others-empowering, not just to humans but to all creatures and to even the smallest units of reality. So I like to say this, uh, an easier way to understand it. God loves everyone and everything, so God can't control anyone or anything. The reason God can't do it is not because God's choosing not to. In my view, because God's love comes first, God must love, and that love is always self-giving and others empowering and therefore inherently uncontrolling. Now, this isn't the God who is the deist God. This is a hands-on God as well. But this hands-on God is never a controlling God. Mm -hmm. I like to sometimes use a parenting analogy. It's neither a manipulative parent or a helicopter parent who's trying to control their kids all the time, nor is it an absentee parent who's never around. Mm -hmm. It's what we might call the ideal parent who's got Mm -hmm. their ideal amount of influence, which doesn't involve either control or uh, absence, which is actually an interesting way to think about Scripture, too, Mm. and that is to ask the question, what is your orienting metaphor or orienting concern? Take someone like Millard Erickson, for instance. I think one of his orienting concerns is God is the, I think he uses the word magnificent king or Mm. something like that, uh, a lot of glory kind of language. Whereas someone like Clark Pinnock, who's an open theist, for him, the orienting metaphor, as he reads scripture, is God is like a loving parent. When you think about a loving parent, you're more inclined to a relational, moment-by-moment, ongoing thing. Kings can do that, too. But usually when you think of a king, you think of more of, okay, this is a sovereign being who must be obeyed. And that can be a caricature, but just... Those kinds of different ways of thinking about God related to particular metaphors, I think, make a difference in, as you try to work out your salvation yeah. in uh, doing theology. Yeah, when you use parenting metaphors, the thing I always think is you're trying to parent a child to where they can become a really thriving, independent 
person, an adult, an agent mm -hmm. in the world. But occasionally, like when you see someone following a, a small child around the airport or something, and they totally hands off, completely hands off, but you're always looking. But then occasionally you grab the kid, right? right. <laughs> and you kind of <laughs> turn them a different direction or whatever. Yeah. So I don't, in terms of your metaphor, it seems like God can't do that. God can't yeah. grab the kid. So here's where the parent metaphor breaks, breaks down. down because I'm actually with the vast majority in the Christian tradition who thinks that God doesn't have a localized body. God is incorporeal, to use the, the, the usual language. So as an omnipresent spirit, God doesn't have hands to reach out and grab that little toddler in the airport. Now, I think God can call upon us to use our hands, but that's mm -hmm. different from God doing it directly. So what are some of your main problems with everything talking about? <laughs> Let me begin, he says. I'm sympathetic to the, some of the fundamental claims that Tom makes. I think the, the notion that God is love, that that's something really fundamental about the divine nature, is right and true and proper, a proper way of thinking about um, God's nature. Sometimes in my own tradition, I think that's not been celebrated enough perhaps not not that i think reformed theologians don't think god loves but that perhaps that they've been rather more transfixed by other divine attributes and i do think that divine love is is very important and i think you know we need to have recovery of that now I'm, i think tom's been instrumental in recent times in putting that back on the agenda i think it's a great thing he and, and a number of other people but particularly the number of books he's written on this topic. I have a colleague who was one of my students, um, Jordan Wessling, who's just written a big book on divine love that's about to come out with Oxford University Press. And when he was writing the much earlier version of that, that was his PhD dissertation, we had many long conversations about this topic. He's from the Wesleyan tradition. He made me think very deeply about some of these things precisely because he was coming at it from a very different mm. point of view. And of course, one of the problems in the Reformed tradition is how if you want to emphasize divine love, that seems to rub up against a reformed emphasis on the partiality of God's purposes, as it's usually construed, you know, that some people are elect, but not all people are elect. If God is ordaining all things, then there's nothing that can interfere with um, the execution of God's purposes in terms of creaturely agency. Um, then how is it that God can be truly loving if not all are saved, all that kind of stuff? Those seem to me to be real problems for Reformed theology, and Reformed theologians ought to take those, those issues very seriously. So to that extent, I think that people like Tom who push back against Reformed theologians on, on those topics are right to do so. But of course, as, a, as someone who stands in the Reformed tradition, I, I'm going to want to resist the sort of general picture that Tom has about the divine nature to some extent. There's a difference between, we might think of two different pictures of the divine nature. There's, there's a view that's sometimes called theistic personalism, which is roughly the idea that God's a person like us, just much bigger. So we can make all kinds of comparisons, like the parent-child analogy, with God because he's like us. He's different, obviously, but he's like a big version of us. Now, I think that to some extent, and I'm not trying to caricature here, <laughs> um, I think that to some extent Tom's view, like many others in the open theist tradition, um, depends on that kind of picture of God, mm -hmm. one that's very popular today. The sort of view that you often find in uh, much traditional Reformed theology is a rather older picture, and of course you can find that older picture in Wesleyan and Arminian theology as well, one where God isn't like a parent in anything other than an analogous way, that there are things, uh, as I've already indicated, about the divine nature that are deeply mysterious and beyond our ken. 
and that we can't really penetrate to understand these things, except our, and unless God reveals himself to us as he has done in Christ. So on that classical, more classical theistic way of thinking about God, um, there seems to be a much greater ontological gap between us and God, us as creatures and who God is, and a much greater sense that whatever we say about the divine nature, whatever little we can say about the divine nature, is going to be faltering and partial and incomplete in important respects. I think Oliver's right about that. Sometimes people in my camp, open and relational theists, we get accused of being too anthropomorphic. In other words, we think about God too much like humans or creatures in some way. And of course, we want to make distinctions. We want to think God is transcendent in ways, you know, God exists everlastingly. You and I don't. God, you know, is perfectly loving, all these sorts of things. But I think it is correct that the open relational theologian is more willing to edge toward the anthropomorphism than what you use the language, classical theism yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and we feel like we want to do that because of certain claims about how we understand love or relationality or salvation. Not that these you know, Reformed folks don't care about love and salvation, <laughs> but it's a particular way of thinking about that that makes us think, mm, it makes more sense to say God has something similar to the way we act. God can act. God can respond. All that. So a little more anthropomorphic than, than mm. classical theism. And I suppose the other important thing to say is that if you're taking a kind of mainstream reformed view, then your concept, not just your concept of God's relation to creation is going to be different, but also um, your way of thinking about God's relation to the future as a consequence of that is going to be different, mm. right? You're going, to, you're going to say, if there's no succession to God's life and if he's outside of time, then there's nothing's going to surprise God, right? There's nothing that is, doesn't fall within God's ordination of all that takes place. Uh, his omniscience encompasses past, present, and future simultaneously. Now, that's obviously very different in terms of what one thinks about the scope of omniscience and, um, and God's foreordination than, say, an open theist thinks. But I would register this one caveat. Sometimes people from the, the sort of persuasion that I am Will, will accuse people who are open theists of just not believing in God's omniscience or something like that. But that's not true. Thank you um, for saying that. I think, I think, I think the issue is how, what one thinks falls within the scope of God's knowledge. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yep. And how, how you define that. That's the issue. And um, those who are open theists just conceive of the scope of divine knowledge rather differently because of what they think about God's relation to, to time and, and the succession of divine life and things like that. There is a real issue, and it does divide us, but let's not caricature one another. Let's get let's zero in on what the real issue is. That's a, I'm, I'm happy that Oliver said that, and I would like to take that comment, the, the use of the word omniscience and what scope it has, and apply it to what I'll call God's almightiness. So when we think about God's power, there's some people use the word sovereign, omnipotence. I like to use the word almighty because it happens to be the one English translators usually use in Scripture. Yeah. But whatever word you like, you have to try to cash out, define what that is. Yeah. And so I think God is almighty in the sense of being mightier than all others, so no equal, exerting might upon all others, and being the source of might for all others. 
So I think God is almighty in those three senses without being able to control. Maybe you should write a book called God Can. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) About this. (laughs) But my point is that I'm guessing that um, Oliver thinks God is almighty. Mm-hmm. But the scope or what counts for this being almighty is going to differ between the two of us. Right. How you sort of think about what these words mean mm-hmm. goes a long way. It's interesting because if you study this, if you study how God worked in the world, you picked a location, you pick an interpretation, an idea of God that suits you. It, I'm trying to make a pastoral connection in that we all experience evil and suffering in the world at mm-hmm. some point in our lives. And usually right away, you don't need a theological understanding of that, right? Mm-hmm. But the answer that appeases you or that comforts you eventually when you start getting into that can be different for different people, mm-hmm. which um, I know, Tom, you've talked a lot about that, too. And um, for some people, it might be much more comforting to believe in a God that is in complete control of past, present, and future. And for others, Tom's view might be more comforting because... You feel like, well, God couldn't do anything about that, so he didn't because and there's a greater good, and it's called God's love. And actually, the Reformed view would say there's probably a greater good, too, but that's not why it happened necessarily, whatever. But you guys can each comment on that on kind of like a pastoral connection to how we experience evil in the world and the theology and, if nothing else, what it means to you or people you've known. Or Yeah, I mean, the, it seems to me that the problem of evil in its various guises and other associated problems like the problem of divine hiddenness, you know, how we can't seem to feel God, know God, sense God in certain situations, um, that sort of thing. Um, those problems are really fundamental existential problems, as you've already said, and um, there are no easy answers to those problems. There are no uh, simple syllogisms that we can trot out that will immediately solve those problems. I think... Um, from my point of view, I think the, the problems of evil in, in its various forms it is the most fundamental theological problem there is, and um, unfortunately, there's no way to resolve that to compl- to a com- in a completely satisfactory way this side of the grave. That's my view, anyway. I certainly don't think that Reformed theologians have, have cornered the market in, in the right answer to the, to the problems of evil and, and the right argument. There's strategies that one can deploy, depending on the tradition that you, you stand in, and I think Reformed theologians have, have, have adopted certain sorts of strategies that tend to, to emphasize the fact that despite appearances, God does know best and all things work to good, ultimately, even if they don't proximately, even if the circumstances I'm experiencing now seem to be to run counter to that, there's got to be some sense in which ultimately God's purposes are for the good. And that is often cashed out in a kind of greater good argument, you know, that um, even if things seem bad at the moment, there's some greater good that they're working towards. And there are other strategies beside that, but that's, I think, a particularly popular one. That doesn't, it's not, that's not something that's the, the peculiar preserve of Reformed theologians. I mean, you could have a greater good argument in the Western tradition, mm-hmm. it would just look slightly different. Mm-hmm. It, this is a problem that I've wrestled with a lot in my life, and not just academically, but existentially. Uh, in fact, I wrote my master's degree on the logical problem of evil, so mm-hmm. I mean, I was pretty, it was pretty, exercised me a great deal. Mm-hmm. Of all the books over the years that I've read on the problem of evil, I think the one that I found most helpful was Nicholas Waterstop's little book, Lament for a Son, which is not really um, uh, an in- 
intellectual resolution of the problems, or even attempts to intellectually resolve the problems, but rather a way of taking up a lament for the circumstance he found himself in when his, his son died tragically in a skiing accident, and how he dealt with that. I found that to be a much more constructive way to deal with the problem of evil, coming from someone who himself stands in the reform tradition. I think that's a brilliant book. I will make the audacious claim that I think I have solved the problem. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> but let me say that in solving this problem of evil and saying God simply can't single-handedly prevent evil, it raises another question or a concern for some people. That is, well, if God can't single-handedly stop this bad thing from happening, how secure can I feel in life? Now, some people will say God allowed it or caused it or it's part of some greater plan or greater good, and they are willing to trust that God knows what God's doing, and therefore they have this sense of security that you know it's all for the best, even though I might not understand it. My particular proposal doesn't quite offer that kind of security and guarantee. Now, I'm willing to make that move because I think overall the proposal I have has more advantages. But I want to be clear about what the implications are of my particular view and that it does make some people uncomfortable. Well, um, we're running low on time, but I wanted to get a little bit to Christology. And maybe, Tom, you could start that because incarnation is part of your argument about what God is like. Yeah, this particular uh, workshop that we're a part of is very interesting because basically what's been happening is we've been looking at the latest uh, theories and work in psychology and thinking about how that might affect our understanding of theology in general and at least in theory, Christology in particular. And the work that we are being asked to do as individuals, workshop participants, is to take the uh, material that's given to us by these psychologists, and then in our own kind of way, given our own theological commitments and concerns and interests and projects, trying to put things together. And it's been fun kind of listening to the various responses in the room because we represent different theological traditions. And so the way we think about psychology or the, the, even the way we think about the importance of psychology for Christology differs. My own project is one that really begins with the humanity of Jesus and then tries to ask questions about how this human might be unique in such a way that Christians have called this human divine as well, or even fully God and fully human. And so for me, given my beginning with the human Jesus standpoint, the work in psychology probably makes a bigger difference to me because if, in fact, some of this work might undermine some of the things I think are true of the human Jesus, then I'll have to rethink what I think about the human Jesus. To this point in the workshop, nothing has really pulled the rug out from my <laughs> Christology. Uh, I, in, at least in theory, want to remain open to that. Mm -hmm. But for my own project, I've been trying to work on a puzzle that I don't have an answer to, and that's this question of if we can't say this human Jesus has some kind of divine reservoir to always choose the good, to always be loving, to never sin, 
then how does this Jesus pull it off? <laughs> if we want to say, like most Christians, that Jesus is sinless, not every Christian believes that, but most do, then how does this Jesus pull it off if this human Jesus isn't drawing from a divine reservoir? Now, I want to say Jesus is empowered and inspired by the Spirit, but so are you and I, and so <laughs> that doesn't make him any different from us. That's been my project, and I'm still trying to work that, that out. My own view of the incarnation is slightly different. From that. <laughs> I have to say. So, um, in theology, we have high Christology and low yeah, Christology, right? Yeah. And and so Tom's working from a low Christology, and it's not to say better or worse, but you start from the humanness aspect. And Oliver, are you going to say? Do I have it right? Or you, yes, you do have it right. My hesitation is just that I think um, the way of designating Christology as high and low is not always terribly perspicuous, and here's why. Um, I suppose that you might think the disciples of Christ started with a low Christology, but they ended up with a very exalted Christology. Having a low Christology doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a sort of deficient way of, you know, you're going to end up with a deficient account of who Christ is. But yes, I think you're right. Right. But I think of Tom's view as a kind of, is is something like what some people working in Christology call a degree Christology. So the idea is that Christ um, is somehow more aware of God or more conscious of God than the rest of us, you know, but it's just a greater degree of divine awareness or a greater degree of the awareness of the spirit or something like that, right? Um, Now, I think I would be very happy to say there is a sense in which Christ is, I presume, more aware of the spirit than I am, more empowered by the spirit than I am. But I, I don't think that's sufficient. I want to say something more. And the something more I want to say is that Christ is God incarnate. So there's a sense in which the traditional theological uh, claim that Christ has two natures, that he's a divine person that takes on a human nature in addition to his divine nature, so that you have this kind of personal union in one person of these two different things, fully human and fully divine, what theologians call the hypostatic union, just means the personal union, the union in the person of of the Son, is really important. If you put that in, in the center then you can have the, the stuff that Tom wants as well. You can have the sense in which he is particularly conscious of uh, God's purposes and so on. But there's this other the kind of metaphysical stuff going on there as well. There's a sense in which what distinguishes Christ is, is more than simply his awareness of God's presence or, or the degree in which God dwells him. But what distinguishes him from the rest of us is that he's a divine person who's united to human nature. Now, for me, that's really important. And a lot of the work I've done on the Incarnation is about trying to provide a model for thinking about that traditional theological claim and um, then try and flesh that out, if you'll excuse the pun, since we're talking about sure. it in various ways. <laughs> you did yeah. write a book on this. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things that I've been thinking about in, in this particular workshop and also thinking about in the little conversations that Oliver and I have had is how... He's, I think he characterizes his view and my view very well, and that I think he has a much closer connection with the Christian tradition as it works with Jesus. But here I'll say something controversial. I don't think the Bible is nearly as supportive of his view. I'm not saying it supports mine fully, mm-hmm. but I, I think if we line, if we randomly pick ten biblical scholars. <laughs> Put them in the room and ask them, is uh, Oliver's view or the classic Christian yeah. view yeah. explicit in the Bible? They say, yeah, no, no, no. I don't, most of them would, maybe 
few of them. I think that's true. Yeah, I, I, I flat you'd agree. I don't yeah. think you can find a two natures doctrine in the Bible. Yeah, <laughs> but then you can't find the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible. Either. Sure. That's right. Yeah, sure. which the Trinity and the hypostatic union, big deals in those yeah. early and ecumenical. They're very linked. <laughs> in, in a very strange way, I'm a little more sola scriptura. <laughs> yeah. no, I think you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're probably right. Yeah. Certainly, I think it's true that my way of thinking about scripture is traditioned. Yeah. Depends upon ecclesial tradition in pretty important ways. Right. So then getting back to open and relational thing, mm -hmm. one of the worries that open and relational thinkers have is that the tradition has been too influenced by certain philosophical metaphysical assumptions. And of course we all are, even if it's implicit. But the worry has been uh, that they've been too influenced by Neoplatonic or Aristotelian, whatever kind of language they want to throw out there. And I think most of the open and relational folks haven't done a very good job of articulating what some alternative metaphysics might look like. Now there's some options on the table, but especially amongst the openness folks, I think there's a lot of work to be done. If they're going to critique the classic tradition for being too Neoplatonic, they've got to, I think, offer an alternative beyond just, well, the Bible points toward our view. It would just help to, to make the lines of discussion clearer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think Tom's right. I think there, there's a sense in, in which simply appealing to the, the biblical text, as we've been saying in this discussion, isn't enough because we're all coming to, the, we're all coming to these biblical texts from whatever perspective mm -hmm. we're coming to them mm -hmm. with prefabricated assumptions, ways of thinking about those texts that are, that are um, fashioned in important respects in the, in the there's no tradition-free text. Right. Yeah, and I wonder if some of the lower Christologies are responding to the traditions that have the higher Christology have kind of made Jesus's life work all about the cross. Like it's all—it's just a certain. Like maybe it's related to just a certain conception of the atonement or the emphasis of penal substitutionary atonement yeah. or something yeah. that maybe the there was a, sometimes an underemphasis on the humanity in the life of Christ. I can certainly see why some people might think, well, look, if you look at the classical account of Christology and some of its proponents, it, does, it looks like the, the kind of Christ that you end up with is a sort of Kryptonian <laughs> uh, who, who doesn't really ever seem to be um, affected by what's going on around him. Mm. That doesn't seem to be the Jesus of the canonical Gospels. So mm -hmm. I do see that, and I, can, I, I do think that's a worry mm -hmm. that has to be taken seriously. And thinking through some of the psych of human psychology sort of helps reinforce yeah. some of that too, yeah. right? Thinking about how he was affected by his environment. I think, that, I think that raises some pretty significant issues with traditional Christology, actually. Mm -hmm. But we think about human psychology and the more that we understand of human psychology and the relation between... Mm -hmm. um, us as persons in the environment, the context that form us, as we've been hearing about in this seminar, that tells us important things about what it is to be human that has got to have, in some sense, implications for what we think about this particular human, right? Mm -hmm. If he's like us in every way, sin accepted, as Hebrews 4. Uh, you're bringing up the cross and the mention of atonement. Mm -hmm. I think this is one really important area in which Wesleyans feel a little more uh, like we have a longer leash, <laughs> we're more willing to uh, criticize the classic uh, views of atonement 
Not that we have a really nice one to replace them with, but um, because we sort of think that the Anselm's view and these kind of classic views of atonement tend to frame God in a way that, at least on the face of it, doesn't make God particularly loving, we're thinking, well, maybe there's another way to work with it. Now, one of the problems that the Wesleyans have in trying to come up with another atonement theory is that there is some language in the biblical text that can support penal, you know, version, <laughs> etc. So, like, we're trying to say, well, we'll make a claim something like, well, but the broader text paints a picture of a loving God, and that's more important, which I believe is true, but that doesn't necessarily deliver us a nice, neat theory of atonement to replace the ones we have problems with. Uh, I think in the Reformed tradition, there a little close, more closely tied to those classic atonement theories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By and large, that's true. Yeah. So kind to each other. I have a final thought. Go for it. I really appreciate all of it. <laughs> I really do. Oh, I mean, he is just the, the, the feeling's mutual. <laughs> uh, my parting thought is theology should be done in more kind of a dialogical and conversational mm. mode. Mm-hmm. Um, let's have less eating more light. Mm. <laughs> mm. I like that.